What does it mean that there's a tradition in poetry? Well, tradition literally means passing something on. And when we think about literary tradition, we can think about what is passed on from one poet to another, from one age to another, from one tradition to another. I want to do a little project in tracking a poetic tradition today, and we're going to start with the early 20th century poet W.B. Yeats. Now, W.B. Yeats is a poet who becomes famous in an odd transition period. He was born in 1865. He dies in 1939. And Yeats sometimes reads like he's a poet of the Romantic period. He writes in mostly iambic pentameter. He writes with lots of rhyme. He writes with lots of antiquated diction. And I remember when I was first reading Yeats back in college, I thought he must be a a contemporary of somebody like Blake or Wordsworth in the late 1700s, early 1800s. But it turns out he dies when World War II is on. So Yeats writes in such a way that you might think he's a an, from an earlier era than he actually is. But what he writes is so powerful that even though he's often writing it in an age that has moved on from the type of poetry he's writing, it's still incredibly powerful. I saw someone yesterday online asked the question, what poem would you give to students if you wanted to truly wow them with a poem? And one of the poems that I reach for when I just want the wow factor is Yeats's poem, The Second Coming. Now, if you've, if you've been around filmmaking or literature in the past, say, 100 years, you've probably heard The Second Coming quoted. I'm going to read it for you and then I talk a little bit about how tradition has brought it forward into the 21st century. So here's The Second Coming by W.B. Yeats. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with a lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again. But now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. So this poem was published in 1920, uh, and it was late in Yeats's career. He had kind of had a slump uh, in the first couple decades of the 20th century. He had published a lot in the uh, 1890s and um, there was a question, you know, does Yeats still have it in him after World War II, World War I has taken place, after people like T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound have really changed poetry? But in 1920, roaring back, uh, the second coming shows us that, in fact, Yeats has only grown in power and elusiveness. Now, this is a, a famously very opaque poem. There's very many, there's lots of obvious references, 
there's New Testament references, there's a clear apocalyptic context to it. And yet, what exactly is he talking about? Well, I I hope it I hope it helps you feel better, listener, to know that I'm not really sure all of what he's talking about. And yet his images and his language have been so powerful that many many poets, filmmakers, writers, uh, I think of uh, Shinua Achebe, um, whose uh, famous novel um, of a couple decades later is called Things Fall Apart. Um, they're directly drawing on this. So let's talk a little bit about the imagery. So we start with this image of the falcon turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. So we have this bird who is supposed to be trained by the human voice and human behavior to obey its human master. But the falcon is turning and turning wider and wider circles in the sky and has lost contact with the one who is supposed to be in control of it or at least its master. So the falcon cannot hear the falconer. There's some disconnection between the animal, the natural, and the human who is supposed to, maybe believes that they're supposed to be able to have some sort of control over it. Then we have things fall apart. It's a really bold sentence, things fall apart. It's a complete sentence. Things is one of those words that I would never tell that my poetry students to use. Thing is such a vague term, such a broad term. Thing is one of the most unpoetic words I can think of. And yet, in the hands of this master poet, W.B. Yeats, it becomes effective. What are, what's falling apart? Things, just general stuff. Now, if we didn't have the widening gyre, that word gyre, uh, G-Y-R-E, is a very odd word. I don't know that I've seen it many places other than in Yeats or in people quoting Yeats. It's very specific, and we have the falcon and the falconer. That's a very concrete image, and there's a lot of significance and meaning in those first two lines. And so I think Yeats maybe has earned a little bit of a daring statement with things fall apart. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. We, we have these three statements. There are three independent clauses which go from shorter to longer. Things fall apart is only three words long. The center cannot hold is four words long. And then mere anarchy is loosed upon the world takes all ten syllables of an iambic pentameter line to say. So we have this, this interesting progression of vague statement, slightly more specific statement, even more specific statement, and that the increasing levels of specificity are proportionate to the increasing uh, complexity of the diction and just straight up length of the sentence. So, you know, th- this is one of those tricks in in writing that they tell you, if you want to make your writing more dynamic, change up your sentence structures and sentence lengths. Have a really long sentence followed by a really short sentence and Yates is naturally doing this here. So we have things which are falling apart. The center cannot hold uh, this idea of a center that turns out not to be the center or a center that becomes decentered. Um, in 1920, Yates writing that is anticipating a lot of literary theory that's going to be coming in the 1960s and 70s. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. I think with this, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. We have to remember the 1920 context. Um, Europe in particular just saw anarchy loosed upon the world. We just saw the most devastating war in recent European history 
And there's certainly a feeling both in this poem and in uh, two poems and works that are coming soon afterwards, uh, T.S. Eliot's Geronchon and T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, and, and for that matter, James Joyce's Ulysses, which further intensify this idea of anarchy. Uh, that archon, that beginning, that rule of law that had held things together has now splintered out and the, the whole world is spinning into chaos. So some pretty heavy stuff. It would be easy, I think, to be a little melodramatic about this. Um, if I remember correctly, uh, some years ago, I ran into a Batman comic book that was called The Widening Gyre. Um, so sometimes these images have been used for uh, for perhaps melodramatic or what we would consider um, kind of uh, cheap pop indications of chaos and anarchy and apocalypse. But Yeats manages to hold it together without seeming, I think, overly theatrical in a bad sense. So after mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, we then have the blood dim tide is loosed and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. So we've even intensified this. And we talked about the, the daring use of the word things, a pretty unpoetic word. We have the verb loosed twice in these next two lines. That is also a little daring. We, would, we always want to be careful that we're not being redundant with our language when we're writing effectively. And yet, I sense almost a little bit of a Hebraic parallelism in these two lines. We find in, in the Psalms, in the writings of the prophets, that often you'll have two lines where one line states some state of affairs and the second line intensifies it and yet keeps us focused on that state of affairs. And so this use of loosed as the verb that links these two lines, it creates a, a, parallel, a parallel structure, a parallelism. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood dim tide is loosed upon the world. Anarchy, that's that's bad. We, we don't want anarchy. And yet it's a pretty abstract word. The blood dimmed tide is much more concrete. So we have this parallelism of intensification, uh, a biblical scholar might call it, where we go from a concept is loosed to a vivid detailed example of that concept is also loosed. This seems appropriate using, using a biblical parallelism, given that this poem is shot through with biblical language. Everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. It's interesting because we, we had these big kind of worldwide statements before, and now we have individual portraits of problems of individuals. So ceremony of innocence is drowned. Uh, not just innocence, but the ceremony of innocence, any sort of particular cultural patterns and celebrations and uh, commemorations, they get drowned out by the blood-dimmed tide. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. How, how uh, convicting I often find these lines. Yes, at our best, we're not willing to act uh, on maybe the ideals we have. And the worst are the ones who act. Now we could see this as an individual problem. I have these high ideals, but I never act on them. When, when I act, it's only on my basest instincts. But I think there's a more of a society-wide 
statement here too, that th- those who are considered the best in a culture, the most upstanding, they're paralyzed uh, through fear, through, through uh, second guessing. And in a culture, those who we wouldn't want to act, we'd want to keep all their thoughts theoretical. Those are the ones who are the go-getters, who are going out and doing things. That is a, that is a terrifying, I think, uh, thought about a culture. And yet Yates sees it going on in the 20th century. I'll leave it up to the listener to think about if that still plagues us in the 21st. So the first half of this poem is very much a portrait of the world, portrait of the world post-World War I, portrait of a world that's spinning into chaos. The second half of this poem gives us this vision of this, of this terrifying antichrist-like beast. So surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. Once again, I think we have this Hebraic-style parallelism here. Some revelation. What kind of revelation? Ah, we intensify into the second coming. So the second coming, that's, that's a good thing, right? Christ coming back, that's, that's real good. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi, the spirit of the world or the world spirit, troubles my sight. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with a lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. This is just a a masterclass in vivid description, but it's not overly flowery. If the second coming is at hand, we would hope that the second coming is a good thing. We would hope that what comes to us is Christ. And yet he has this vision that, yes, something's coming, but it's not Christ. It's something with with the shape of a lion body and the head of a man that desert birds are reeling about. That just sounds scary to me. And I think it's supposed to be both biblical in its imagery, but not biblical in a positive sense. This isn't the Lion of Judah come to bring justice and order. This seems, this seems like, a, like a monstrous thing. And traditionally, it's been interpreted as a monstrous, even anti-Christ image. The darkness drops again, but now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. This is this is where I, I do think the poem gets a bit opaque. Um, what does it mean for a cradle to vex 20 centuries to a nightmare? Uh, is, is this an indictment of Christianity? Is there something about uh, Christ who has made the world this chaotic thing? Uh, also, vexed to nightmare is just such an odd phrase. Uh, is the 20th century the nightmare of Christianity? Uh, what does that even mean? So you can see why people puzzle over this and disagree about it. But the the imagery is powerful and the language is powerful and it suggests something awful and deeply biblical. And we're still puzzling through, I think, as a, as a culture, as people who have inherited this poem, what it means. And then we have this question right at the end. What rough beast it's our come round at last slouches toward Bethlehem to be born? Slouches is such a fantastic verb there. It's not proceeds, not marches, not even slinks, slouches. Slouch usually describes a posture 
and not a form of, of moving or a form of walking. But Yates takes this verb that talk that describes usually how someone is sitting or standing, and he forces it to be a verb that describes how something walks. And I just love it. It's so good. Slouching toward Bethlehem. Uh, is the title of a collection of essays by Joan Didion that's published in the 1960s about um, the 60s counterculture movement, um, especially in California, um, and is ambivalent about how helpful they've been to human culture. So that that phrase, slouching toward Bethlehem, just like the, the widening gyre at the beginning, have become really, really popular for later writers to use. So there's a rough beast that is trying to incarnate itself into the world. It's moving toward Bethlehem to be born. This is a scary poem. It feels apocalyptic. It feels prophetic. There's something not just anxious, but but terrified about this poem. And when I said earlier that I like it because it wows, it might wow almost too much. There's something about Yeats that he, it's, it's hard for him not to give us both barrels when he writes poetry. Um, and this is true of Yeats's poetry, both that's biblical in its imagery and also classical in its imagery. Leda and the Swan is the other poem that I would point to uh, where it's just as powerful and terrifying, but from a, a pagan Greco-Roman classical perspective. So I mentioned at the beginning poetic tradition. W- w- what do I mean by that? Well, this poem, like I said, has been borrowed by Batman writers, by essayists like Joan Didion, by novelists like Chinua Achebe. But I want to talk about a very recent inheritance of this poem in a, a short verse, it's maybe about half as long as Yeats's, by the contemporary poet Jane Greer. Now, Jane Greer, uh, she was born in the 1950s. Uh, she's still actively writing. Her new book is coming out soon. Um, I hope to review her new book. Uh, soon on this podcast. But Jane Greer in the 80s and 90s was part of what's called the New Formalist Movement in America and really tried to recapture a, a sense of, of meter, of rhyme, of those traditional forms that English poets have written in that the 20th century, especially influenced by the modernists, Pound, H.D., Eliot, and others, kind of got away from. Greer, uh, another poet named Annie Finch, um, tried to turn things back. And uh, just full disclosure, when I when I was in my MFA program um, in poetry uh, about uh, 10, 15 years ago, uh, the new formalists were very influential on me. Um, and so I want to look at a poem that was published just earlier this year by Jane Greer, uh, very much a formal poem. And we can see her inheriting and putting herself as part of Yeats's tradition. And yet, talking about something that that feels pretty different. Let me read it to you. Motherhood on the one quiet night. Today, our truculent son left for a week. Tonight, my husband reads and, for my sake, listens to music with the headphones on, knowing I'm close outside, the windows are open, knowing I pounce on quiet when I find it. The grief... It cannot seem to move beyond it. But in this silence, I will try to save some shred of this beastly day, try to believe in redemption, and that I am not the beast, voice tight, teeth showing, 
my hour come round at last. When I found this poem earlier, I didn't expect the Yeatsian turn at the end, and it was surprising to me. This is a quieter poem, certainly, than Yeats's poem. It's, it's, a, it's a little portrait of a moment, uh, a mother sitting outside, father sitting inside, listening to headphones so as not to disturb the quiet of the mother, and the son gone, a truculent son. Uh, there's in that word truculent, it's a, it's a nice, nice, uh, nice poetic word there, uh, truculent. Uh, in that word, we get the sense that all, all, is, all is not necessarily harmonious between uh, father, mother, and son. Maybe there's some worry. Maybe there was a fight, uh, it seems, is implied. Today, our truculent son left for a week. Tonight, my husband reads and for my sake, listens to music with the headphones on, knowing I'm close outside, the windows are open. Uh, the first two lines, that weak and sake, those as... Uh, ending words it, it creates a slant rhyme and it's it's in the tradition of yates who writes in mostly iambic pentameter and yet it's it's loose he, he changes up the, the rhythm when he wants to for effect and we see with the listens to music with the headphones on knowing i'm close outside the windows are open knowing i pounce on quiet when i find it uh it's not it's not a it's not an a a b b c c rhyme scheme it's a kind of slant AA rhyme scheme, and then the rhyme kind of dissipates. In fact, in that last line of the first stanza, knowing I pounce on quiet when I find it, there's a slant rhyme uh, internally, quiet and find it. Um, they, they echo each other, even though they're not exactly, exactly rhyming. And that pounce on quiet is quite nice because it puts into our minds an, a beast-like activity. Humans, I guess, can pounce. But if we say that a human pounces, we're associating them with an animal, particularly a predatory movement. And so Greer sets us up very subtly for the, the second and last stanza. The grief, I cannot seem to move beyond it. But in this silence, I will try to save some shred of this beastly day. So now she said that She's associated herself with beastliness, and now the day is beastly. Try to believe in redemption and that I am not the beast, voice tight, teeth showing my hour come round at last. So with this save and believe, she brings back this uh, slant rhyme, and then beast and last are almost even closer um, as slant rhymes. What is, what is Greer doing in inheriting Yeats here? Well, she is not worried right now in this poem about some ultimate antichrist, uh, beast of the apocalypse. Um, you know, we think, we think of, uh, of Revelation, something we didn't mention earlier, but uh, the antichrist is, is associated with this great beast uh, who is evil in the book of Revelation by uh, St. John the Evangelist. Um, she, she's not doing that. She's not bringing us into apocalyptic vision. She, and Greer is really good at this, makes it personal. I don't want to be that beast. And I have the, the capability of being that beast. I could make myself through, through pain, through, through argument, through disagreement, through just being a nasty person. I could my, make myself into that rough beast. 
and I don't want to be. And there's this cry, uh, like there is in, I think, a lot of Greer's poems, of trying to reject the beastliness of the self and seek for redemption. Now, redemption is not a word that we find in Yeats, and yet it, it permeates the whole poem. There's a need for redemption. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely some second coming is at hand. Yeats wants salvation. He wants redemption. Um, but he doesn't ask for it in the way that Greer does. This, this is a more prayerful, and I think in the end a more hopeful poem, even though it's mostly about a, a mother feeling in her grief and frustration that she's, she's teetering on the edge of beastliness. So the inheritance of poetry, the tradition of poetry, is a curious thing, something that's a big statement about Europe and Christendom and 20 centuries of progress um, can be inherited by another generation, at least the imagery can be inherited, and be a statement about the individual. And perhaps this shouldn't be so surprising. From Plato onward, we have this idea that what is true of the city is true of the individual, and what's true of the individual is true of the city. And we see in Greer and Yeats a tradition forming where the beastliness and the beast image careens from city to individual and back. Thanks for spending time with us today. I've been Dr. Timothy Bartell. This is Poetry Corner. And I hope that you've begun to see that poetry can be very powerful, whether it's more private individual poetry or more epoch-defining poetry. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.